Welcome to the Patristics Podcast, where the writings of the ancient church are reborn for the modern world. In this episode, Gary and Alvin continue their discussion of First Clement. So the first thing that stood out to me was in chapter 1. Clement says, The Church of God, which temporarily resides at Rome, to the Church of God temporarily residing at Corinth. To me, this kind of reveals Clement's essential worldview. And he shows his worldview in this very first sentence of the letter. He's trying to communicate to the Corinthians that we are not of this world, that our time on earth will not just come to an end, but we will also have to give an account for what we've done. And this single sentence is meant to be understood as a warning to the leaders of the rebellion and a call for them to repent and realign their earthly perspective towards heaven. So that's what I got out of the way he words his inter- introduction. Yeah. Um, it's definitely, like you were saying, this is kind of a eschatological framework that he's functioning under, that there's this inbreaking of the new already within uh, the creation of the old. And that, that plays a part into the mindset into the attitude of just Christians in general during that time, um, especially with the lingering threats of persecution and alienation. I think it's particularly important to keep that in mind, that uh, the apocalyptic understanding of early Christianity, they were you know, ready for Christ to return uh, very soon, at least, you know, at least what we can garner from some of the uh, early Pauline texts. But, you know, that it, there is this sense that you know, this is ongoing, even into the uh, late 90s, that there's this idea that we are not always going to participate into, in the, uh, the, the motions of this world, that we temporarily reside here. Yep. And, I mean, for me, that's, that's kind of central to my worldview, too, as I have adopted from the fathers. I mean, St. John Chrysostom says this pretty clearly, that our citizenship is of heaven, not of earth. And that type of worldview has tremendous implications on just how you function, how you live. Yeah. And even it, it just bleeds into everything, you know, your politics. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you truly believe that, you know, I as an individual, I'm not primarily an American citizen. Like that is not where my identity lies. I'm a citizen of heaven. And right. that really does shape your perspective of nationalism, patriotism, and, you know, it, it kind of throws a wrench into all that. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to go so far as to portray the early Christians as being these strong duelists um, that they suddenly lost, you know, care for the creation as, as it is. Um, oh, definitely not. And I think it's really easy to, whenever you read texts like this, to almost fall into like some Gnostic tendencies. Yeah. Yeah. Escapism. That, right, escapism. And it's important that, especially in the Pauline letters, you see this, that these notions of temporality within this world uh, have moral implications. I mean, obviously, Clement's going to follow this up with some strong implications of uh, how the church should function. Um, yeah. So, so it's you know it's it's finding that fine balance between understanding the temporality of this life uh, and in this world, yet not falling out and uh, of this world so much that you 
do more damage than than good, and you become essentially lazy, like uh, some of the some of the Thessalonians did. Yeah. What um what chapters do you have next that you wanted to mention? Um, I was particularly interested with chapters uh, three and five. Um, Let's hear it. So three is particularly interesting because Clement portrays envy, strife, sedition, persecution, disorder, and even war and captivity uh, uh, flowing out of this idea of uh, disunity. And you know, my beloved did eat and drink and was not large and became fat and, and kicked, besides from Deuteronomy. Um, so the worthless rose up against the honored, those of no reputation against such as were renowned, the foolish against the wise, the young against those advanced in years. And you see here just a recapitulation of some of those early Corinthian debates and those early Corinthian tendencies to separate into groups and factions. Yeah. Um, even yeah. like he even specifically mentions in chapter 47, I think, where he mm-hmm. says, like, you Corinthians need to remember what Paul wrote to you. Like, mm-hmm. you guys were, were all about the factions of, you know, Paul, Apollos, and Peter. So this whole tendency to revert to this tribalism is something that the Corinthians really struggle with. I mean, Clement's writing this only, like, 35 years after Paul, as far as, like, the contemporary dating is concerned. But, yeah, like, it's really interesting to think about, like, this is the same church. Right. With the same people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is just, like, the next generation you know, they probably inherited a lot of that same particular ethos that they grew up with, and they may have seen um, with some of their older members uh, just trickling down. Just from their society at large, how their society functions, you know, it's really easy. I mean, even now, you still see some of this um, uh, factions, you know, that grow within culture uh, that aren't necessarily intentional. They just kind of sort of happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this intentionality that's at play here that we have to be, we have to intend to be united and it, unification just doesn't happen. It's something that we work toward. Yeah. Being united is, is almost contrary to our natural disposition. Mm-hmm. We're naturally inclined to form tribes. Right. And to yeah. attack one another. So, yeah. I mean, this aspect of Christ's command to love one another is so counter to our natural understanding of of how we're supposed to live and interact with one another. Right. It's a it's definitely a labor of love, and labor and love definitely use to the to the most extreme uh, sense of those terms. I mean, it's it's a lot of work, but you do that work out of this conviction that you truly care for the other. Yeah. Um, especially within Roman society, where there was definitely this stratification of society and separation and boundary markers. It's really important that Christianity distinguish itself from all other movements in insofar as they asserted that we have to be unified no matter our backgrounds. That's very, it's very countercultural, um, and it's still countercultural today. Um, it's, it's just not as it's not as executed. All the time, and it's really easy to fall into those lazy tendencies to kind of segregate ourselves into those that are like-minded. Yeah, for me, I mean, the next thing I wanted to mention was um, chapters 14 and 15. Do you have anything before that? Oh, I want to go to uh, chapter five. Okay. Um, chapter five is interesting in terms of modern scholarship. So after uh, Saint Paul confronts Saint Peter. Uh, as accounted uh, in the epistle to the, uh, the Galatians, there is there's a modern reception 
within scholarship that the there was two factions that kind of grew out of that. You had those that followed Paul, and you had those that followed Peter, um, because their understandings how works of the law function within Christian communities differed. So if you look at later Pauline literature, uh, there's not so much interaction with Peter. Um, so modern scholars take that as kind of like this implication that Paul no longer associated or did mission work with Peter. So it's interesting that Clement, within the first century, still identifies uh, the two figures together, uh, Peter and Paul, and that they both have this type of equality in terms of their apostolic stature. Yeah. And that they're both examples of holy life and holy living. It's interesting to see how modern scholarship interprets their relationship and how someone within the first century interprets their relationship, which is a point of interest. Yeah. So which chapters uh, were you referring to? 14, 15? Yeah, do you have um, anything between 6 and 13? Uh, other than noting their, or uh, Clement's use of um, Jewish scriptures, which is astounding, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's quoting scriptures like crazy. Yeah, which makes me wonder uh, how, what type of access he had in terms of where he was getting these, if he was still um, associated with any Jewish communities, because it's a hefty amount of uh, literature that he's citing. So to think that he, he's either doing this from uh, either memory or some sort of teaching, uh, but the variety that you also see uh, within these chapters is particularly impressive, because he's not just sticking with one book or a certain section of books, but he weaves through uh, the Pentateuch uh, into the Minor Prophets. Yeah, yeah he's he's everywhere. Isaiah, Psalms, Job, mm-hmm. he's like all over the place. So the thing that interested me about 14 and 15 is the understanding that to follow God means to follow godly men. This is the, the proof text against that whole congregationalist, um, it's just me and Jesus mentality. In chapter 14, he says, It is right and holy to obey God rather than to follow those who through pride and sedition have become the leaders of detestable emulation. And one might say, of course, I obey God alone. It's just me and Jesus. I don't follow fallible men. You know, I hear that a lot. However, lest we think we don't submit to men, Clement says in chapter 15, let us cleave to those who cultivate peace with godliness and not to those who hypocritically profess to desire it. Um, earlier, Paul told this exact same Corinthian church to, quote, follow me as I follow Christ. Two different times, 1 Corinthians 4.16 and 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. So this tells me that the Corinthian church clearly struggled with submitting to authority. Like that is the central problem here. What do you think about that? I think it's particularly interesting uh, within Corinth that this is happening again, given their history. Uh, but also because of their social location, being within a Roman society. Uh, And I wonder if the pressure already coming from Roman authority and then adding on top of that Christian or ecclesial authority, maybe some of the Corinthians saw a little bit of some issues there with their ideas of Christian freedom, but then suddenly having authorities placed over them. But it's also interesting because also within the Corinthian letters that they follow certain figures. Um, so it was whoever they interpreted to be cultivating peace with godliness. So Apollos or P- 
Peter or the super holy ones saying, I follow Jesus. Um, Gotta love those. There's always those. Yeah. yeah. So obviously that's the group everybody wants to be in or that they, <laughs> they think everyone should be in that group. Um, yeah, I don't follow Jesus. I follow Paul. Yeah. <laughs> like, who's going to say that? Yeah. Yeah, who's going to say that? So, and you can see within those uh, Pauline Corinthian letters, this uh, Paul's struggle to really portray himself as uh, someone respectable in their eyes because the Corinthians had a totally different category for what qualifies someone to be a leader. So I wonder if there's a little bit of uh, some difference there, some negotiation in terms of this is what true authority looks like. And it means cultivating peace with godliness. And it means, you know, being humble. Uh, whereas in Roman society, it was power through assertion. And we gain peace through, you know, war. So I wonder if there is still some of the, that struggle. Um, even though they converted to Christianity, they still had to understand how those values transferred over uh, from their culture into their church and how some of their values don't transfer over. Because when you think of a leader, you know, you think of someone strong, bold, etc. But, you know, Paul professed, you know, to be foolish. Um, Paul professed uh, certain qualities to not be so majestic, you know, for lack of a better term. You know, he wasn't this you know, glamorous Roman emperor, but he came in, in weakness so that the power of the gospel can work through him. So yeah, I think still dealing with some of those same issues there. Yeah. Um, my My notes jump right to chapter 25. What about you? Oh, man. Yeah, let's jump to 25. He does a lot of uh, Old Testament citations. Yeah. Okay. So, That's yeah. kind of why I skipped over that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. What, do you have, what do you have for for 25? So, perhaps the most controversial, the entire thing, <laughs> Clement mentions the phoenix. <laughs> OMG. He must be an idiot, is how many people interpret this. I mean, I think it's pretty cool. I, th- I, know, I thought it was cool the second I read it. But some people just want to feel good about themselves, I guess, and criticize Clement for having this. Yeah. I, I even read something that said, uh, clearly this is why Clement isn't considered canonical. That's hilarious. I know. I was like, oh, man, <laughs> what a clown. Um, so, yeah, for listeners, Clement, at this point in the, the letter, he's talking about how nature declares the resurrection how you can see the signs of resurrection almost in a prophetic sense in nature. So he talks about like the day and night cycle, how the you know the day rises and then the night goes to sleep, or like the sowing of seeds. And so he's going through these analogies, I guess, and just showing you know nature declares the resurrection. And so he uses the phoenix as just one of many examples from nature that the resurrection is clearly seen and he is literally just quoting the historian herodotus from his um his work the histories which is found in book two verse 73 and it's almost verbatim like he quotes he just he says exactly what is found in herodotus's account of history which was common knowledge at the time the story was made popular by herodotus who who writes it as an account of egyptian hearsay so he explicitly mentions in his account that he only ever saw paintings of the mythical bird, which the Egyptians call call it the Banu, which is like a kind of heron. 
and he's only ever seen paintings and he's, he mentions how he himself can't believe the story to be true so it's just his account of egyptian oral tradition that um clement references but the phoenix also um appears in third baruch and also the jewish play by ezekiel the tragedian which is in the second century the roman governor tacitus also mentions the appearance of the phoenix which he claims occurred in AD 34, around the reign of Claudius. Um, within a generation of this, the Roman, Roman poet Martial used the phoenix as a symbol for Rome's e eternality. Philostratus and Lactantius also referred to the phoenix. Um, but most interestingly, in Judaism, the phoenix is known as the Col, the C-H-O-L, I don't really know how they pronounce that which actually makes an appearance in Job 29.18, which says, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the phoenix. And he's using death and resurrection imagery. According to a midrash known as the Genesis Rabbah, which is a 6th century Jewish commentary of the book of Genesis, the story of the phoenix begins in the Garden of Eden. When Eve fell, being tempted by the serpent to eat the forbidden fruit, it says that Eve was envious that the animals were still innocent, so she tempted them to do the same. Um, as it turns out, only the phoenix resisted her, and as a result, the phoenix was given eternal life, living in peace for a thousand years and being reborn from an egg to continue to live again, repeating the cycle forever. So this is not just something that Clement just made up. This is something that is like all throughout multiple cultures. You know, it's, yeah. it's in Judaism, it's in, you know, Egyptian culture, it's in Roman culture. Yeah. It's the phoenix was a, a symbol that was saturated in this in this time period. So yeah. he, he would be he would be stupid not to use this as an illustration for Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. that's the way I see it. Yeah, there's definitely it's. Not only a smart move that Clement does, um, it's, it's a very creative one. It's, it's a good uh, apologetic, I guess, for lack of a better term, within this context. Definitely. Because he, he's pointing out um, some of the things, some of the revelatory things that nature points to about Christianity or the truth that can be found within Christianity is, in a sense, there are some aspects that are common to all. Um, so resurrection obviously not only playing a key role within Christianity, but also in some in some sects of uh, Second Temple Judaism and other religions. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it, it's important. It's I mean, obviously, it's really easy to interpret this as some very odd oriental move, um, mm -hmm. some type of appeal. Um, but I think you're right that uh, there is uh, some justification for Clement using this illustration. Yeah, and I think it's... Like, the thing that bothers me about when people criticize him for this, for one, even if, like, let's say, for example, the, the phoenix is real, right? The account of the phoenix says that it's only seen once every 500 years. Mm -hmm. Like, that that detail in of itself makes it nearly impossible to confirm. Right. So it's, it, like, e like, we can't even definitively say it's not real because of that detail. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to confirm or deny is yeah. is the thing, and yeah. it's it's because it's all based on you know hearsay, oral traditions, and mm. and it's just yeah you're not gonna wait 500 years <laughs> to, to see if this thing's real. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's just really fascinating. That's pretty much all I wanted to say about that chapter. Okay, yeah, I don't have it. Uh, I mean, you covered um, the 
material you point out, the uh, the Jewish material, that was actually something I wasn't familiar with um, and I haven't read before. So that was oh, yeah? fascinating to hear. Yeah. yeah, that was really interesting. Oh. <laughs> I was like, whoa, oh. that's cool. Yeah. Um, so after chapter 25, my next one is chapters 31 to 33. What, do you have anything between there? I had 32 through 34. All right, so it's, it's the same section. Yeah. The faith versus yeah. works. Right. Um, yeah, this is a yeah particularly interesting. Yeah, this uh, one. Set of chapters. This one's the doozy. <laughs> <laughs> this one's gonna get a lot of a lot of conversation. I hope so. So. All right. So chapter thirty-one. So the way I structured my analysis is chapter thirty-two says, "Quote: Therefore, all these were honored and made great, not for their own sake, nor for their own works." nor for the righteousness which they wrought, but through the operation of his will, being called by his will in Christ Jesus, we too are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom and understanding, nor godliness, nor works, which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but that faith through which Almighty God has justified all men from the beginning. So that is like the central the conversation starter there. Mm. But in, 30, in, in chapter 31, so actually... Before that, let's talk about the implications of what he said. Does this mean that the reformers were correct in their sola fide doctrine? Go. I mean, that's what the text says. So, <laughs> what you says gonna... it, I believe it. Um, well, I think it's important that we read on, my fellow friend. <laughs> and that was my point. Is so in chapter 31, he says, Abraham, our father, was blessed for what reason? Was it not because he worked righteousness and truth through faith? Isaac, with perfect confidence, as if knowing what was going to happen, cheerfully yielded himself as a sacrifice. Jacob, because of his brother, went forth with humility from his own land and came to serve Laban. In chapter 33, says, All righteous men have been adorned with good works. The image here is like a fruit tree being adorned with fruit. A fruit tree without fruit is just a tree. It's useless. It's a useless object for someone looking for fruit. Um, chapter 34, Clement quotes the scripture saying, Behold, the Lord cometh, and his reward is before his face to render every man according to his work. Chapter 35, Clement says, We are numbered among the saints, not only if our understanding is fixed with faith before God, but also if we do the things which are in harmony with his will. Chapter 49, let him who has love in Christ keep the commandments of Christ. Chapter 50 says, beloved, we are blessed if we keep the commandments of God. So clearly he's emphasizing works. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, so I think it's, it's interesting to follow his logic. So going back to 32, so... I think, I think it's important that we try to parse this out, uh, because it's really easy to, uh, read through, through the lens of the works versus faith mm -hmm. debate. Um, and I, I kind of want to do as best as we can to kind of like step away from that. Yeah. Uh, but it, obviously this conversation does have implications for that. Right. Um, so his claim, uh, in chapter 32, uh, is that uh, we too are not justified by ourselves, not by our own wisdom and understanding, nor values, nor works, which we have wrought in holiness of the heart, but by that faith through which Almighty God has justified all men from the beginning. 
And I think this is the paragraph or, or just the sentence in which to frame all of his statements regarding works. That works, yes, are important, but they all flow through um, that faith, which can easily, easily be interpreted um, in like reformational terms that emphasize works flowing through faith as if it was natural. Um, what mm-hmm. I think is uh, going on here, and I think we would agree on this, Gary, um, is that that faith needs to be acted upon through some type of synergy, that there is this effort here. Um, yep. So it's not that we are justified by our works, but we are justified in faith, but that faith needs to be acted upon. And I think it's interesting that it's not, it doesn't make a claim here, it doesn't try to throw that dichotomy, is it faith or is it works, uh, but that it's faith alongside our works that is important. So yeah, I, I, and I think that's actually closer to Calvin's understanding, and I know that will scandalize some people. Uh, <laughs> Uh, even though Calvin was uh, a monergist, yeah. he, I think, is a is a bit better in articulating that relationship between and Luther. And Luther, definitely, yeah. Because yeah. uh, Luther, he wanted to step away from um, any type of discussion regarding works. I have a uh, analogy for this. All right. It's kind of morbid, but it works. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, so for the listeners, suppose... Alvin and I both had bombs in our houses. We both receive phone calls warning us about it. Alvin immediately runs out of his house, but I don't. Alvin's house explodes, and he is saved. My house explodes, and I die. Which one of us had faith? Now, the answer is obvious. Alvin. However, if you if all you knew was that Alvin ran out of his house and I did not, how can you tell, with such limited information, that only Alvin had faith? It's because we know innately that faith is justified by works. Faith is not some Gnostic reality existing only intellectually in an unseen immaterial realm. It's an incarnate reality. Faith is always incarnated through works. It assumes the flesh of action and movement, as Alvin said, effort. So to say that faith can exist somewhere divorced from works is a contradiction of terms. This is what James means when he says faith without works is dead. I think this only became an issue when Martin Luther came on the scene and proposed a false dichotomy. If Luther granted my analogy, he would have asked, Was Alvin saved because he had faith that the bomb was in his house, or because he ran out of his house? Luther's conclusion would be that Alvin running out of his house had nothing to do with why Alvin saved. However, when I put it like this, the presence of the false dichotomy should be obvious. Of course, Alvin would not be saved from the explosion if he had not run out of the house. And, of course, his faith saved him precisely because it moved his legs. What do you think about that, Alvin? I wish I had uh, faith to go running more, because uh, <laughs> I could definitely use a, a good workout right now. Yeah, I, th- I think that comes close, uh, especially with the reference to James, to really clarifying the, the issue at hand. That there is some work or effort involved in, in justifying our faith, and... Uh, I think that's why James can be so scandalous to read sometimes. Is uh, mm-hmm. You can read James um, and you can feel just condemned because, you know, there's some aspect of your faith that you're not working out. And your faith, under James's terms, faith is dead. And I think that's, that's what Clement is uh, getting at here. 
with uh, Corinthian church is yeah. that, you know, the righteous men have been adorned with good works. And it's not that they're trying to get justification through their good works, but they, they adorn themselves through their faith with mm-hmm. good works. And I think I would say Reformed theology through Calvin would understand works this way. Right. That a, a faith without works is a contradiction of terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you alluded to before, the difference there is primarily within not just monergism, but monergism with the understanding of soteriology being salvation is a past event. So this idea that is common today that you have been saved already and like that kind of negates the necessity of works. Because if you, you know, if you believe, you know, before, before you run a marathon, if you already have the trophy, why run? You know, so I think that's where a disconnect happens. Yeah, I think it's important to keep that um, the, the eschatological framework in mind when it comes to salvation, that it's uh, already but not yet, that it's something that is in some very real sense uh, realized within uh, the self, you know, the kingdom of God is within you. But also um, it needs to be fully realized in the sense that the, the kingdom of God needs to be fully in place for you to be declared that you are, are saved. Uh, so it's living within that tension. It's particularly difficult sometimes, um, and, it's, and it goes back to that idea of uh, uh, temporality, you know, living as a temporal resident within this world. Mm-hmm. I found the chapter 37 to be pretty interesting, acting like soldiers, going back to, you know, using cultural ideas that uh, is familiar to the Corinthians and to the Roman population, but then spiritualizing that. I know it's kind of cliche now to do this type of um, cultural imagery, um, especially since you can get some some violent overtones with uh, military usage within Christianity. But there's a, a good deal of um, of unity language going on here. Um, the head is nothing without the feet, and the feet are nothing without the head. Obviously, this goes back to Paul's language. Right. Um, but it's it's important imagery in the sense of how it raises up the lowly. You know, indeed, the very smallest members of our body are necessary and useful to the whole body. All work together in harmony, and they are under one common rule for the preservation of the whole body, which leads exactly right into uh, chapter 38, about uh, preserving the whole body in Jesus Christ and letting everyone be subject to his neighbor. And so even within using, you know, terms that are, are difficult to translate, you know, military terms or even, you know, anatomical terms, that there's this idea of unity at the core that Clement is uh, pointing at. What about you? Um, it's going to be you from here on out. That was the last of my notes. <laughs> um, I don't have anything particularly interesting after that. I think the chapters on... 42, 43, and uh, 44 are interesting, but I didn't write anything significant or do any research on those. Yeah, so, yeah, I didn't write anything down about those either, but it is interesting that this early, there's already the evidence of apostolic succession. Right. And I I wonder, like, where the the root of that kind of came into play, because obviously apostolic succession, um, unless someone wants to interpret, you know, the early episode in Acts where they elect uh, another apostle as some prefiguration of this later development. But, you know, when did this actually start to be discussed within, you know, larger Christian circles? So, yeah. And his, his allusion is uh, also interesting in 40, chapter 41, about the daily sacrifices 
uh, not being offered in every place, nor peace offerings, sin offerings, and trespass offerings, but in Jerusalem only. So it's very interesting that they're still referencing the temple in Jerusalem there and its sacrifices as something that still plays into their imagination um, about how to understand Christianity. So even after, you know, the destruction of the temple in uh, 70 AD, wherever you date Clement's letter, there is uh, something significant that happens within Judaism, but it still plays a, a strong role within Christian imagination. Do you think he is suggesting that this is taking place among Christians, or is he just referencing Jewish practice and comparing it to the church? Um, I think he's just, offhandedly, I think he's just making comparisons. Um, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem that this is an actual practice within their own communities, yeah. uh, but it's more of an illustration. Uh, kind of, it's, I, I would say the Epistle to the Hebrews also makes the same move but it's difficult to even say within that context how sacrifice is understood there as well. But but the fact that um, it's playing a part in their imagination is particularly significant because you have some forms of, particularly within Protestantism, where those daily sacrifices don't play a role in forming the imagination of Christians in the sense of having daily prayers or daily set rules for liturgical offices, etc. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, those are all my notes. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I thought was interesting was chapter 53. Did you have anything in response to anything in between that? Uh, nothing significant. Okay, so in chapter 53, he gives the illustration that Moses kind of put himself in between God and the people. So when God wanted to condemn um, the people, Moses said he he asked that he would also be blotted out of the book of the living um so he, moses because of his love for the people that god wanted to condemn he kind of threw himself under the bus and clement is using this as an illustration of of what true love looks like and he seems to use this as kind of an apologetic against the leaders of the rebellion saying you know, if you're if you truly loved the church, you would be condemning yourself and not the priests. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like he's using that comparison. Yeah. Like like you'd you'd look like Moses if you actually cared, but you don't. And then he says, you know, if, if anyone if any one of you like schismatics or truly noble minded or truly compassionate, you'd be saying something like, if I'm the cause of sedition and disagreement and schisms, I will depart. I will go away wherever you desire. I will do whatever the majority commands. Only let the flock of Christ live united on terms of peace with the presbyters set over it. Yeah. So he's using this interesting uh, rebuke of their actions and showing that it's not biblical, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that Moses plays a key role as a type of figure that they should emulate, which... I wonder how much familiarity this community has with the, the Pentateuch, uh, where Moses actually does those things uh, within Scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, because, I mean, Clement is using this example uh, on the assumption that the Corinthians will respect what he's saying and will respect Moses as a figure, as a holy figure. Right. And so, again, those, those ties to uh, Judaism are still in play in the late first century. Yeah. I think that's it for me. What about you? Yeah, I am. Out. I mean, obviously, I think this is something that um, 
I could talk about for a while. I mean, every chapter is like, like basically every chapter is like loaded with something still relevant for us. It's just yep. a matter of expanding on it. That's mm-hmm. uh, it's clearly difficult. Um, but it is fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of insight we gain into early Christianity within this letter. So it was nice kind of like reading through this and kind of getting uh, some insight um, into early Christianity that you just don't get from, you know, just reading, you know, some other texts, like introduction to uh, early Christianity, you know, those type of textbooks. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners, both of them, they're probably, some might be inclined to just read the Bible. So this this might be a, a beginning of some people to actually be interested in reading extra biblical texts to get an, a grander picture of how the church began and yeah. what they believed. And not even reading it as a, um, you know, not trying to persuade people to think this is like canonical literature or, um, or trying to enforce some authority out of this epistle, but... Um, reading it for the sake of history, uh, for the sake of understanding um, historical developments and early understandings uh, within Christianity. It's really easy to, like you were saying, just read scripture and then just assume how things developed after that from what you, maybe you were taught growing up. Um, yeah. But it's completely, completely different Like when you actually wrestle with texts that were written after Paul's epistles and after some of the New Testament uh, letters that these issues were ongoing and that this is how they were handled within the early church yeah well i'd say that was a success our first all right our first document (laughs) down we did it Um, that was actually exhausting (laughs) yeah (laughs) but good though yeah it's good so what would be our next endeavor i would like to do the uh the decay decay? yeah i was thinking that too actually yeah it's a little bit shorter Yep. Right, I think. Um, yeah, and it's a little bit more uh, straightforward. <laughs> yeah. But it's important. So I, I think it, it would be interesting to see, uh, because it, it is a text that isn't read as much as it, I think it should be, but it is a pretty accessible text. It's nothing incoherent. It's, it's not like readable. Gonna, yeah, I wouldn't do something on like the Shepherd of uh, Hermos or something like that. That would be a nightmare. <laughs> To, uh, to try to do a one podcast on or whatever. Well, you heard it here first. Next podcast is going to be on the Didache. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm ready. Thank you for listening to the Patristics Podcast. Feel free to continue the discussion on our Facebook page and let us know if we made any errors. We'll correct them in our next recording. In the next episode, we will be discussing the Didache. Please join us.